Have we been stars? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, you do your normal intro and then... What is my normal Hey everybody, uh, you're listening to Critical Lawsuit, hashtag Crit Law, uh, with Nick and Kevin, where we talk about the law and games and the law games. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing alright. Um, yeah, it's been a nice bit of a break over the Easter, uh, the Easter holidays, and um, good to be back at work, good to be recording these things. Mm, hope you all enjoyed our tasty new intro music. A uh, big thank you to Gibbo. Uh, or Kevin Gibson, who is uh, kindly composed this music for us. Yeah, that's a different Kevin from me. It's, it's, it's not me. Other, other Kevin. Yeah. He's um, not a minion. He's, 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 he's actually a self-standing, hard-working citizen. Mm-hmm. Well then, Kevin, it certainly pees my ear holes. It makes me feel like playing Super Mario. <laughs> anyway, uh, what are we drinking today? I've just got my Mike's Rock here, what about you? Yeah, no, I've just got my, my tea, again, as normal, as boring as, as ever. So actually, I wanted to bring some Ucal. Um, so my, for those of you who don't know, my wife is Mozambique, and my mother-in-law has just recently come back from a visit to Maputo, to Mozambique, and they have milk chocolate there, which is basically their equivalent of stereo stuffy, uh, but it's called Ucal. Good God, it's good. That's so good. So she came back and she bought me a six pack of blue car. And I meant to bring it to work today, but I forgot. Next time, next time. You mm-hmm. may last that long. Anyway, um, this has been quite an interesting week in terms of the news. Uh, one of the things that I picked up, which was fairly interesting, is Trendy Entertainment. So they're the guys behind uh, Dungeon Defenders, is suing Jeremy Stieglitz, who is a former employee there. Um, now, you know Jeremy Stieglitz's work because he has been one of the directing minds and sort of one of the people behind Ark Survival Evolved. Uh, what's interesting here is that they're, they're claiming that he's in breach of his non-compete clause. Um, and so they uh, sort of started proceedings in the Florida Supreme Court to try and get an interim relief. If they get this relief, it's likely then that Ark Survival Evolved is going to be taken down from the Steam store and developed on the game might be next, which is quite hectic considering how it's been a bit of a breakout success and sort of early access. Um, we're going to be following this one with a little bit of interest because it's a very relevant issue for game development studios. Um, but sort of for now, what's going on is, is that they're basically claiming that when he, when he left, uh, he had a three year sort of non compete clause which he managed to take down to a one-year complete. So he only had a year where he wasn't meant to go and develop games, basically. Uh, which ostensibly he followed, but it, there are the allegations that seem to be that Jeremy, sort of, sort of as soon as he left, he was already going and sort of getting people and, and already doing work on Ark Survival. Um, I'm just going to call it Ark from now on. Uh, and some of the allegations even go down while he was still with Trendy, who was the worker. So it's going to be interesting. Let's see what happens in the courts, see what happens. But in certain cases, I'm going to be following interest. Do you think that there's any chance that, um, that Trendy will be able to take over the assets of Ark? I don't think so. I don't, I don't, uh, so I don't think 
I mean, even in terms of cyberpunk copyright law, I don't think it would be possible. I don't the sort of the damages that they would be entitled to. I don't think would be include ownership of the uh, of the IP. So no, I don't think so. I mean, what it is likely though is that the damages would probably have to be paid. So even a portion of the profits maybe from art would have to be paid to try and meet that possibility. I think uh, there's punitive damages uh, against Jeremy personally. I think. And like I said, is that they the more most immediate and most damaging things is that they would actually stop development. They could get an injunction to prevent development mm. and get the game taken off the store. Uh, but I don't think they'd be able to pay more people. Do you have anything interesting for us? Yeah. Um, so that dragon cancer. Um, I'm not sure if you know if, if listeners know about that. Um, it's a it's a game on the Steam store. Uh, it's it's a it's a game that focuses on narrative. More than, more than the gameplay side of things. Um, that has, the creators of that game have pulled or tried to pull a lot of let's plays surrounding the game or copyright violations. Um, and the statement that they released on this, I find it very interesting because they've said that they like the let's play culture. They really enjoy it. They don't have a problem with it inherently. The problem is that considering the game is so very focused on narrative, it's more like a movie than any than, than a game that we would understand it in the way that we would understand it. And so watching the game and playing the game are very, very similar. So you can get as much enjoyment out of watching the game, or watching a let's play of the game as you would playing it. Um, which means that a large percentage of the people who would otherwise have bought the game to play it are now not buying it because they've seen the game played and their interest has been has been sated. They've got the experience. Yeah. The game by watching someone else play it. Um, and truth be told, that's that's kind of at the heart of what copyright law is uh, is all about. Um, it, yeah, they they're losing out on the money that they would otherwise have generated and. Had these people not seen let's plays of it, and they're encouraging let's plays uh, to instead show only sn snippets of the game and use it as a kind of marketing tool to say if you enjoy this game, go out and buy it, go out and support the people who have Probably. actually spent money and time and blood and sweat yeah. in producing this. Yeah, I mean, it's very heavy game, very heavy topic. Uh, yeah, so I can totally, I can totally see that. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you, you, you think that you think that the, they're them exercising their copyright rights are uh, is legitimate in this case? Yeah, I think. Um, it's not Nintendo. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no. Like Nintendo would 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 just want to pull down everything because they don't have particular control over it. And these guys, they're coming from a good space. Like anyone can use any rules and any laws in a good way or a bad way. And I, I am of the opinion that they're employing it as wholesomely as as possible, as it was intended. Okay, cool. Uh, another story that I picked up, which I think is fairly interesting, is that Valve, uh, the company that owns Steam or Dota 2 and everything else, uh, have lost a court case in Australia in terms of that they've been in breach of the Australian consumer laws. In that they don't offer a sufficient refund policy. Uh, what's interesting is so so Steam didn't 
the whistle to indicate that the material facts are Steam doesn't have a general review platform to attach to the Steam service. And uh, in terms of Australian law, uh, any goods that are sold, there is a statutory requirement that a, that a refund policy is included. Uh, so Steam fought this court case initially, and so their arguments were, were twofold. The one was that games don't constitute as goods, as defined in terms of Australian law. And the second one uh, was is that, well, even if they do constitute as goods, Valve isn't subject to Australian laws because they aren't actually providing, providing sale in terms of terms of agreement, in terms of service isn't actually located for it, isn't being governed by Australian law. And they've lost on both counts. So the Australian courts have said that no, your games that you're selling on your platform do digital goods do constitute as uh, as, as as goods in terms of the law. And that well, yes, your terms and conditions say what what but sorry about you, because you are making the service available in Australia, inherently means that you are dictated or you're going to be governed by Australian law. Uh, this has some interesting implications. It's also something I want to see. So, obviously, this was applying strictly to games. But if they are considering games as goods, digital goods, you know, how is this going to extend to things like the Steam Workshop? What about in app purchases? Does this mean now that if I buy a skin, for example, in Dota 2, is that now subject to a refund? Do I get to refund my my purchase? Am I entitled to that? What's interesting from a South African law perspective as well is, is that we're basically the same, is that there should be a, a refund policy. In terms of, well, there doesn't need to be a refund policy, but South African consumers who buy games on Steam in terms of the Consumer Protection Act are entitled to a refund. Um, well, at least within the six months. So this is where it gets interesting for South Africa. So the Electronic Communications and Transactions Act, uh, Electronic Communications and Transactions Act, would be the primary piece of legislation that applies to refunds. And in this case, it would be there is all goods purchased online or uh, via the internet. There's a certain day coming down period for whatever reason. But what's interesting is that we've specifically excluded electronic software and consumer software if it has been, if when you buy it, um, you can't return it if you've opened it. Now, what's also interesting is, is that we, South Africa, in terms of South African law, we've always made the distinction that things are either goods or services, and it has long been said that games and software, for example, are goods. So we've already got this clarified in terms of our law. Uh, it would be the, I would say in terms of Steam is, is that well, provided you don't play the game, right? So and they can monitor that. They can monitor how long you play the game. As long as you haven't played the game, you'd be entitled to that seven-day refund. But as soon as you played it, in terms of the ECT Act, your return would be void. And because the whole thing kind of makes sense, you don't want. But as soon as you play the game, you play through the game easily within seven days. Uh, for a lot of modern AAA titles, and you can say they're all familiar. You know? So I don't think, you know, it's not. The only exception would be where the game is really kind of so broken and so buggy that the Section 56 uh, implied warranty of quality that is attached to the, the Consumer Protection Act that would get. So if someone, if a developer reads in there a super buggy game, completely broken, doesn't function, you would then be entitled. Within six months, return that game for a full refund or repairs. 
Uh, what's really sort of relevant in this case would be that you can't really get a replacement, uh, you can't really get it repaired, so you would be entitled to a full cash refund, which is interesting. Yeah, the replacement and repair um, thing I I thought would be uh, very interesting considering the whole uh, the whole debacle surrounding uh, Batman Arkham. Mm. Yeah, uh, the PC game being broken to yeah. to high heaven and uh, people wanting it, it would be interesting to me at least to see people ask for a repair of that. Yeah, we'll say this is when you post people. Yeah. Have the issue of patch. Yeah, so Steve, Val, if you're listening, if you ever get into any trouble with the local super boss, you know who speaks to. Uh, what else? Anything else? Should... Yeah, there was uh, there was something else that I saw. Um, we were talking a bit uh, in the last podcast about uh, Lindsay Lohan and the um, and the publicity rights and privacy rights. And another thing cropped up recently uh, in Ultimate Fighting Champion. Uh, Championship 2, um, where the Muslim fighter, forgive me if I get this name correct, um, the pronunciation, uh, the Muslim fighter Khabib Nurmagomedev, um, he, at the end of the fight in the game, if he wins, he does a Christian celebration, he does a sign of the cross. And Obviously, being a Muslim fighter, he took exception to this and uh, called um, called the producers out on Twitter, and they responded quite positively, saying, "Look, we we're sorry, we didn't actually think and we'll change it." But this just goes again to to show how publicity rights work, how privacy rights work. I know that a lot of people will look at the at the Lindsay Lohan things and say that. Uh, she's a public figure. We shouldn't have to worry about whether we treat her in this way or that way because it's a risk that she's willing to take. But if you look at it in, in the context of of this current uh, this current thing that we're talking about, that um, a person's religion is very important to them, and the way that they express their religion, particularly if their fans share that religion, um, Khabib has many fans who are themselves Muslim, and they would be offended uh, to see their hero depicted doing something that is not in his belief system. Um, so it's a bit yeah. of a part in terms of the obviously the creator. Yeah. Of like alteration for sure. Um, yeah. And what made them think as a celebrating why why that particular you know celebratory role? Yeah. You know, I don't know, it's a bit weird. I, mean, it's I think I think just because a lot of because a lot of fighters would, would do the like the that whole thank you speech, thank you, God, thank you, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I would find it very interesting why they I find it very interesting why they didn't think to maybe check. Or maybe yeah. they maybe they did, and this is just one that slipped through the cracks. Yeah, you you can better put that. Look, they handled it fairly well. He he also handled it fairly. Um, just the tweet was was very calm and saying, "Look, this is this is not right. Please please change it." Um, and they responded very very well as well. <coughs> anyway, so uh, last month we were talking about the publications board, and we were talking about how the online content. 
multi-classification systems was going to work. And this month, or rather this time, we're going to, we've moved on from that. We're going to be talking about something else. Um, so we're going to be talking about how companies should be treating their intellectual property. And when you license out your IP, some of the considerations that you should be thinking about. Hmm. Yeah, um, and Nick has, has very kindly allowed me to chat about something that I find very um, very exciting and very strange and uh, very convoluted. So if I if I wobble a little bit, I, I apologize. But um, it's truly fascinating. It's a mixture of uh, of law, of business, and the creative process, and it's superhero movies. So I think so. This isn't strictly uh, games. And you know, that's kind of where we were just talking about. But it's probably the best case study of what can go wrong if you don't treat your IP properly or sort of if you fail to negotiate properly. So do excuse us, it's not really although it does have effect in games because it has affected how these characters have been portrayed in games in the past. It's not just uh, not just movies, but it so that disclaimer, but this is what we do. It's just it's so it's such a good case study. Mm -hmm. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So the the main thing is that we're talking about uh, Marvel and how Marvel Studios have uh, essentially lost the rights to Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, X-Men, um, and just the the general story about that. Now, as as everyone probably knows by now. Um, Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man, 20th Century Fox owns the rights to the Fantastic Four and X-Men, and Marvel owns the rights to the Avengers and the bulk of the remaining Marvel superheroes. When you say own the rights, what do you mean? Uh, the rights to produce films based on those, uh, those characters. So Marvel will own the rights to carry on writing stories and comics about the Fantastic Four and X-Men and Spider-Man, but uh, they did sell their film rights in these um, copyrighted assets to Sony and 20th Century Fox a couple of years ago. Um, the thing that I'd first like to just point out here is that there, there are three very important things to just start uh, to understand at the beginning. The first is that the creative industry is still a business. Things are bought and sold, companies go bankrupt, cash cows are born and bred and, and all that. And if you don't, if you don't believe me, then just consider MGM Studios and James Bond. The only way that MGM Studios was actually able to stay afloat for a large portion of its life is to bring out a James Bond film every three years. It's it's what they did, um, and that's what that's what a lot of current film studios uh, have to do as well. Spider Man is a huge uh, cash cow for for Sony, and that's. One of the reasons why we see it come around all the time, and why there's reboot after reboot. Um, the second thing to note is that legal loopholes are exceptionally powerful, um, and contracts dealing with important subjects must then be exceptionally clear and tightly worded so that you don't accidentally give away a little bit more or a lot more than you originally intended. And the third important thing is that. Intellectual property rights come in bundles, like uh, like we were saying, Nick. Um, uh, film rights is the stuff that Marvel has has lost out on. It's still got its comic book rights. So 
if you if you create the character Spider-Man, you've got a number of different rights associated with Spider-Man. I can own Spider-Man as a concept, but I can license certain rights to you. Uh, that's the one. And uh, or I could sell it outright, um, but only specific portions of that, the the stuff that I would be entitled to as the owner of Spider-Man. And in this case, Marvel has uh, sold the rights to create films. So with those thing, those three things in mind, um, let's let's consider like a brief summary of Marvel's story. So in the late 80s and early 90s, they Marvel was very close on bankruptcy. In fact, it did become bankrupt and sort of clawed its way out um, in the late 90s. It declared bankruptcy in 1996. And in order to try and survive this bad patch, it was selling off rights left, right, and center. And these rights included the film rights for Spider-Man, Deadpool, Fantastic Four, X-Men. But if anyone's old enough to remember the superheroes back in that time, they weren't they weren't particularly good. Uh, particularly Batman and Robin. That was kind of like the so you know, super, super, yeah, super, sort of the golden age of superheroes that we experience now all the way around. Yeah. Batman was really the only Superman franchise. I mean, there was that Spawn movie, which was terrible. Um, lots of classic Superman films, they were pretty good. Yeah, and the Tim Burton, Tim Burton's Batman's were pretty good. I quite enjoyed those. No, yeah. the films were terrible. Yeah. Um, but Marvel hadn't really had success yeah. with any of their IP. And there weren't. It wasn't this. It wasn't this explode. It wasn't this huge money making machine yeah, well, that it is today. Yeah, it hadn't hadn't entered the mainstream pop culture. Yeah. No. So film rights, essentially, what we're getting at here is that film rights were valuable but not as valuable as they are today. So Marvel was selling them off, thinking it's a small thing that I'm actually selling. It's not, it's not, it's not a, such a big deal for me. Let's sell it off and try and get some money back so that I can stave off bankruptcy. Um, but then the 2000s rolled around, and the first Spider-Man movie came out, the first X-Men movies came out, and that, that sort of exploded the the golden age of superhero movies that we know of today and the value of these filming rights uh, increased exponentially um, and now Marvel had the situation of the rights that it had sold being a lot more valuable than it actually anticipated that they were going to be um, and now this is something that in the, in the industry is really regarded as uh, the concept of future proofing, um, being that when they when they sold the, the rights, they were they believed that the rights were going to go in this particular direction, but then they went in that in, in a different direction, and they hadn't catered for that. They hadn't future proofed their 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 um, their goals with these rights. Um, so the main problem with the, the whole concept of future proving um, in, in this context is that the superhero movies, the, the rights from it in, in the superhero movies, weren't necessarily as valuable in the minds of the people drafting the agreements. And that's, the, that's really crunching. Because what, what I mean by this is, is how the agreements were worded. And like I said, uh, 
earlier, if, if it's too broadly worded, the seller can find himself losing more rights than he intended, or selling more rights than he intended. Um, but now, obviously, without seeing Marvel's actual license agreements or sale agreements, we can't say exactly how they did this and what the wording was used, but there's some very interesting stories floating around um, uh, about this. And the two that I want to focus on is X-Men and uh, Fantastic Four. Now, 20th Century Fox owns uh, the rights to the film rights to X-Men and Fantastic Four. But the way that these agreements were drafted, uh, under X-Men, they bought the they bought the film rights to Marvel's mutant characters. They didn't, spe they didn't specify X-Men as in Wolverine, Cyclops, Jean Grey, etc., etc. Instead, they they just used the classification of mutants. Now, this is an exceptionally broad thing when you're dealing with uh, when you're dealing with a comic book series in which thousands of characters are regarded as mutants. Um, so it goes beyond the X-Men universe, potentially. Yeah, potentially. And in that, it's actually uh, interesting because we have an example very recently in, in the Age of Ultron as to how uh, Marvel Studios has dealt with this little legal issue because Scarlet Witch and, Quil and Quicksilver, they're regarded as, they're, they're, according to the Marvel Universe, they are. X-Men, uh, Magneto's children, they are mutants. Therefore, they, they have part of both the X-Men universe and the Avengers Exactly. So Marvel was able to use Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in the Avengers films because they appeared in the, in the Avengers universe, but they had to specify that they were not mutants. And that's why in the Avengers film you'll see that they, um, they are described by the characters as being genetically enhanced humans yeah. using the power of uh, the, the scepter only. Another example of how um, Marvel was being able to exploit some of this IP that it kind of gave away but didn't really mm. because I suppose when it came to drafting, when they gave away the X-Men universes, they were giving away the X-Men franchise, but how do you define that? Yeah. Know, is it just the X-Men team? What about the villains then? What about everything else? Yeah. You know? So that's why that's why they chose the term mutants. But it's interesting how this is now led yeah. to all these sort of interesting crossovers and other problems. And uh, on the on the Fantastic Four side, the problem gets even larger because they didn't just sell like like you you, you correctly mentioned now. Uh, if it's just the X Men, what about the villains and stuff? So they didn't sell the the Fantastic Four as in the team. They sold what seems to be the the, the whole series. Um, but again, here, an issue that appeared is it's not, they didn't sell the characters that had been created. They sold the characters of the universe, which included all of the characters that are yet to be created. Now, what this means is that Marvel cannot produce a Fantastic Four comic book with a new character Unless that character is now covered by the legal um, documents. Also, so rather they do create a new character, yeah, yeah, they're automatically hidden away the new rights. Yeah, the, my, my wording there was horrible, but that's, that's exactly right. If they create a new character, they're automatically tacking it on to the film rights that they, they gave uh, 20th Century Fox a couple of years back. Um, 
And you'd think that this is a problem that just relates to the, the movie lines, but as, as we've just mentioned with, with creating characters for Fantastic Four, it's, it's actually much broader than that. Um, because it impacts on how Marvel as a content creator deals with the rest of its friends. Um, and one of the ways that, uh, that it seems that Marvel is actually handling this is it's, it's actually moving away from exploiting those rights. One of the things that I've been seeing in, um, in how Marvel is dealing with the X-Men franchise and the Fantastic Four franchise it, it kind of seems, it feels like a, a kind of scorched earth policy has been implemented, where they, they're intentionally avoiding creating new stories. Um, they've specifically told their writers not to create new characters for the Fantastic Four series. And the idea that seems to be coming through this is that they're wanting to limit the amount of people that actually want to see X-Men and Fantastic Four. Because if you have no fans that are interested in seeing, uh, in reading about Fantastic Four or the X-Men, then you're going to have no one who's wanting to watch the movies based on them, which means that the movie rights are actually worthless and Marvel can buy them back from Fox. Um, and this really then puts into perspective how interesting the new partnership between Sony and Marvel is regarding the uh, the use of Spider-Man in the Avengers book. Because Spider uh, Sony has allowed Marvel now to use Spider-Man for free in return for which Sony is actually just getting a, a not a not something that Marvel can actually sell. They're giving they're getting uh, fan goodwill, they're getting fan buy-in, fans are now being able to see, they're now able to see Marvel using Spider-Man, and Spider-Man being, interacting with all the other characters that Spider-Man normally interacts with. Uh, well, okay, so I think it's also it's important here to reduce the broader context of the Marvel film project. So, um, so yes, I mean, it's obviously awesome that we can see Spider-Man as well, but then Spider-Man has, is a member of the Avengers in the comic universe, or at least he has been. Um, but it's also important to note is, is that the Marvel, so Marvel being a bike by Disney and having its own budget and its own resources now to produce its own films, if you look at the Marvel films, and that, you know, starting with Iron Man uh, and the Incredible Hulk, and going through to now the Avengers project, the Guardians of the Galaxy, so this whole universe that they're building, those have been very well received by fans. Um, and they, they've yet to really have a bad movie. Um, but Fantastic Four, and even the Spider-Man thing with, with, with uh, the Garfield, uh, Andrew Garfield, Andrew Garfield, yeah. Garfield yeah. Um, they, they've generally been poorly received. And so when, when you talk about that injection of goodwill, it's this idea that Marvel, Marvel Disney have made good movies, and they, they treat source material Respect and they tend to, you know, they plan to the fact, they give the fact that they want. Um, and, you know, it's kind of the, 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 the bad will that Spider Man received, especially after sort of Spider Man 3, that awful sequence of him dancing in that black tuxedo. Like, what? What's going on? You know, that, 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 hurt a lot of, you know, that hurt a lot of fans. And sort of, 
The Garfield. I have nightmares. <laughs> the Garfield Spider-Man. I, I, I quite enjoyed it. And sort of the, I think what was happening here is it's sort of the new hope. It's like, well, now that Marvel Disney is exercising some sort of control over how Spider-Man is portraying films, that makes potentially, if that's good work, makes um, the Spider-Man film franchise more valuable now than it was. So it's where people kind of, uh, like, I don't, and the, the, the reviews of, for example, Batman vs. Superman have been absolutely appalling. Um, you know, it's going to take a lot to, you know, does this mean that, that the, the universe holding that DC is trying to do is going to be successful, but it's going to take quite a lot. So, it, you know, yes, I, I, I get where you're coming from, and sort of when, when they use that term, good world, that's what we do. It's this, um, sort of this renewed hope that the, the original creators of the content are, are going to be giving, you know, we're going to see quality films coming out of it. So, yeah, the, the reason I was, I was wanting to talk about this, uh, and, and in terms of what it means for us as game developers and, and creators and possibly filmmakers, if, if there's anyone out there listening, is um, just a couple of things. And Nick, if you think of anything, uh, if you have anything that you want to put in, just say. Um, the first that springs to mind for me is to really be careful about what you sell. Be particular about what you're selling. Be um, try and ascertain why you're selling it, what its potential future uh, will be, um, and when you are sure that you're wanting to sell it, limit it. Um, and try and future-proof your work. Uh, consider how the thing that you're selling could impact your exploitation of the other things that you still own. Um, and then another thing is, I, I believe Nick, we were talking about this the other day, um, when you give a license, try and make it conditional. Uh, can you expand? Yeah. Okay. So I, I think I just sort of so given sort of all the facts that that sort of we've spoken about now, I think it's important to also bear in mind the change that Marvel has got, because that I think also directly, and, and this is important for 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 anyone acting in the creative industries, is that you will see yourself as, well, I make video games, I'm a game developer. What does that have to do? You know, it is not my core competency. It is not my business to make film, to make feature-length movies about my games. It's not my core business to make um, comics around my video games. And the point that I want to say is, this, uh, so I think it's like this, and that's very much, I think, the mindset, the model. It's like, well, we're not in the business of making movies, so. We want to partner with, and this is often the thought process that a lot of people go through. It's like, well, I want to, I want to work with somebody who is in this core business, um, and that's you know, yes, there was this financial stress that the company was under, but part of you know, why didn't they sell their rights to DC? Why didn't they sell their rights to Vertigo? Why didn't they sell their rights? You know, they didn't give away their core business. So it's how you know they kind of were giving away because they sold the distillery. So the first thing to think about when looking to exploit your intellectual property beyond what you would say is your core competency is always remember your exit plan, right? I think the fundament, the biggest thing that's happened is the fact that Marvel was acquired by Disney, right? So now, yes, Marvel isn't, or they weren't in the business of making film, but they are now. Yeah. And that's fundamentally changed things. Um, and these old license agreements that didn't have that vision in mind has severely hampered them. Because they have no way now 
of getting back the rights to these uh, licenses to these intellectual properties that they've given away, even though now it's part of their core business. So that that's the one thing is, is that don't bear that in mind. So you know you, you don't know what your core business will be in the future, and so you be very careful about what you give away and how you give it away. Um, so in terms of the like, so one of the things that I always talk to the game is when I gave it up for clients, is I always say when dealing with the publishing deal, never give away the rights to your merchandise. Merchandising is hugely profitable for people, can be, especially if you get across a great idea. Um, and, you know, yes, you're not in the business of making t-shirts and plushies and backpacks and hats and all sorts of other nonsense. So you want to partner with people. But remember, what that, so what that entails is don't give away those rights. You license them, um, and attached to that license then is saying, make sure you're making money off them. You should always be making revenue out of, um, out of your IP that they're licensing to. So, I mean, again, we don't know what the deal is with, um, you know, with Google in their studios, but it's likely that there will be some royalty attached, you know, that, that they will be getting a cut of the profits. They didn't just give away the license, and hopefully not. And if they did, that's awful. You know, they shouldn't have just said, you know, here, give me $5 million, and now you can use my IP and film all the time. That's, that's an example of a bad deal. Instead, what they should have said is, I'm going to give you you're going to give me two million dollars, and then I get five percent of the profits. That's a much better deal. The second thing is when you when you're considering how people are going to be exploiting your IPs, you want to make sure that they're actually going to do it. And so, what I like to build into my contracts is things around um, you want you want to build in things that saying that there's certain parts. If they know I, I'm going to go to Sony, Sony has to make sure that they kind of, if they want to make films about Spider-Man, then those films need to be making at least, you know, $10 million every film, uh, and it needs to be happening every fairly frequently, so every five years there must at least be a new film. Um, and then that, those targets need to be adjusted to inflation, obviously, because, you know, $10 million nowadays is not very easy. And that's, from what I understand from the Marvel, uh, Marvel license agreements, is that there is that time force. That's why we had this really shitty Fantastic Four reboot, for example, is that because if they didn't make it, they would have lost the rights and would have automatically seen it back. Um, but this then should be tied back. You know, it's not it's not enough just to have the time force because otherwise you get shitty films being made just because they want to retain the rights. Because you want to tie other incentives to it to make sure that it's being exploited properly. Um, also, just because I mean the the other good ways is that give give rights for a certain amount of time, so give it for 10, 15 years. Don't have them be a perpetual license, which is what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Perpetual licenses is that for, for as long as the contract exists, it goes on. There's no way to do it. Rather have the license for a certain amount of time, and then after that period of time, you can renegotiate. That would be Marvel, because that's the whole thing, is that if they had that clause in, for example, then Sony, you know, they, well, Fox has got Fantastic Four, right? Yeah. So they could say, well, Fox, you've got the rights to use uh, Fantastic Four for 20 years, and then after that, we'll renegotiate. Renegotiate, and you're not guaranteed. Then you can say, "Well, look, we've been by Disney now. We're not going to renegotiate. You know, we're, we're going to take those rights back, and then we're going to get to the um, These are the sort of things that you want to be thinking about. This is, you know, it, it, it's that's what proper future proofing is about. Um, so I suppose that the bottom line is, don't think about now. Don't think about what your core business is. Think about the possibilities going forward. And as I mean, video games as an industry, or games as an industry, is large. Enough, 
So think about that. I mean, it's hugely relevant to today's blockchain technology. Um, another example of this, which is interesting, and sort of it's, it's the other extreme, is Games Workshop. So Games Workshop makes a, a tabletop board game. They're, they're a miniatures company. They make little toy soldiers, you know, uh, and they've got games saved around them. They're, they're key properties for Warhammer. It's Warhammer 40k, and what was Warhammer Fantasy is now being rebranded as Age of Sigma. But they traditionally have been very, very protective of their IP, and they've been very careful about who can exploit it. And recently, especially with video games, they've now completely gone the other way. So what they've done is, is that they will basically let anyone play, maybe games and games workshop intellectual property, providing that they get a slice of it. And so what they've decided, and this has had this interesting effect, is that you'll see now that there is this glut of Game Workshop licensed games. So Vermintide, um, there's the there's Dawn of War, there's the Dawn of War series, there's the new Total War, uh, Warm Fantasy coming out, which is looking really good. Uh, but there's also all these little indie studios getting to play with Warhammer, a really valuable brand. And so how DWs, how they've rationalized it from a business sense is that, well, if there's, from one hand, if there's 50 million games of ours out there using our intellectual property, that's good from a mindset. You know, it's making our brand more valuable, making it pervasive. But by any, it's kind of a shotgun approach. By enabling anybody to get games, sure, there's going to be a lot of shit ones, but there's potentially going to be a lot of really good games, a lot of sleeper hits that we didn't know were going to be good. Hmm. And I think Vermintide's quite a good example of that. Vermintide's kind of a left for dead clone, except for Warhammer Fantasy Universe. And I don't, I don't think that the old GW would have allowed that, but it's a really good game, and it's been really successful. And what's nice is, is that a lot of their old intellectual properties like Necromunda and Dying and Blood Bowl, which haven't had a physical, real-world presence for a really long time, are getting treatment. And the fans who used to play those tabletop board games are now being able to play them in a digital environment. Um, so that's a good example of of how I think licensing, it's not suitable necessarily for everybody, but it's kind of the other extreme. I kind of let this broad license, well, anybody can make something about it, but we're getting, coming back to that revenue model, it's coming back to that final model. We're allowing people to use it, we've been very permissive with our license, with our intellectual property, but we're always getting a cut of it. And they're kind of just like, well, if more people are making games about stuff, we'll do it better. Um, how that will change in the future, I don't know. It's just it's an interesting, another interesting example of. <clears throat> a licensing scheme that seems to be working for you. You know, obviously, you know, GW maybe Games Workshop, I don't know, acquires a game development studio or themselves get acquired. You know, what happens if, I don't know, Valve decides that actually they want to get into board games, so they're going to acquire GW. You know, then maybe then we'll start seeing that this open license that they've had is going to be restricted again. I want to bring that house. Mm. And as long as the agreements they've got with all the existing intellectual property holders is sufficient to allow for that, they will be solid. They're not going to have a problem. So that was interesting. Yeah, um, I hope uh, I hope everyone has sort of managed to absorb all of the legal speak, mm. and uh, then your your games, if you make them, uh, your films, if you make them. Are licensed in the best way possible. Mm. Just I mean, just remember at its core, um, if you're operating in the creative industries, 
the intellectual property, the copyrights attached to your, your work is what makes you a mm. Don't give away stuff that you don't need to give away. Uh, always speak to a lawyer before signing away any of your rights, even with publishing. You know, this is where I think a lot of game developers kind of get trapped from like, oh, I'm a publisher, then what are you doing? Be very careful about what you're giving away. Not, make sure you're not just giving away the distribution rights. You know, what about your rights to sequels? What about the rights to derivative rights? And this is interesting from the game's perspective is look what happened to Dota. Hmm. Right? That was a derivative product from Warcraft 3. All of a sudden that was one of the largest games in the world. And Valve managed to acquire that. And how did they do that? That's interesting. And that's the thing maybe I'll probably get into the hmm. uh, in the future. Uh, and, also, and also, just on publishing as well, um, I've, I've come across a number of um, a number of examples of where people have gone to publishers and given rights, global publishing rights, mm. and this is particularly dangerous if the person that you're giving those rights to is getting them perpetually, like you mentioned, um, and is too small to actually. Uh, yeah. Market. Yeah. If you're going, if you're from a, a, if you go to a small little publisher in the in the middle of a small town, rural South Africa, who now has the ownership of the global publishing rights, how are they going to publish in the US? How are they going to publish in the UK? Those markets are effectively removed from you now, um, and you might be better off giving a certain publisher uh, rights in South Africa because they know the industry and they're better suited to it, and then shopping around for international rights somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah, it's a make sure the people that you're partnering with support right. your, your agreement should be fit, uh, and what your, your, your license should be fit to what they can actually perform. Don't, I think a lot of people kind of get blinded by, oh God, it's not, you know, this is so cool, and it's yeah. excited that they kind of give away everything, and they should be a little bit more, um, Restrained with what they're doing, so allow them to fully exploit that. Uh, but yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to Critical Lawsuit. Um, follow us on on Twitter. Follow Nick and Kev. Uh, find us. You can get our podcasts on uh, on our SoundCloud and on iTunes Store, and shortly on YouTube, hopefully. Um, and yes, as always, if you want us to talk about something, we, we get I get suggestions almost every week, so we do hear them. We will be talking about them. Um, I think this month we're going to be sticking to the copyright topics. We'll be exploring into other things, but we haven't quite decided what we want to do next week. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. See you next week.